Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Bruce Fine. He is a lawyer who specializes in constitutional and international law. He was Associate Deputy Attorney General under President Reagan and Research Director for Republicans on the Joint Congressional Committee on Covert Arms Sales to Iran. On February 10, 2023, he wrote an article for Consortium News titled The Calamity of America's Divine Mission. And in 2010, Bruce Fine wrote a book titled American Empire Before the Fall. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins, I live in Aiken, South Carolina. I'm part of that military-industrial complex, you might say. 20 years in the Navy, then worked at the Savannah River site for a while, now involved in cleanup waste. I'm retired from doing that. Okay, um, born in Mass General, lived various places, uh, grew up in Connecticut, uh, lived in Aiken, South Carolina, D.C., uh, Flint, Michigan, Chicago, and I now live south of San Francisco in San Mateo, California. Okay, Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Morey. I'm class of 63. Uh, I currently live in Tacoma Park, just outside of Washington, D.C. However, I'm a born and bred Californian and um, a almost completely retired clinical psychologist. Okay, Peter. Hi, I'm a editor and writer. I have lived all over the place. I'm living now up in uh, Northern New Hampshire in the um, live free or die state <laughs> of New Hampshire. I, I thought the Supreme Court said you didn't have to stick that on your license plate anymore. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, all license plates, all license plates have that on it, I think. Uh, maybe, well, it was a famous maybe. case called New Hampshire against Piper. Somebody protested that he didn't want to have it on a license plate. And the Supreme Court said he had a First Amendment right to take it off. <laughs> oh. oh, that's a good decision. <laughs> yeah, up here, they usually say uh, our motto is... Uh, live free and you die. Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. I'm in Pasadena, California, class of 63, environmental lawyer, and I'm dealing with a first world problem, which is my cabin up at Lake Arrowhead has nine feet, two inches of snow and is covered. And I hope I'll be able to see it again. <laughs> wow. 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 Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt, I spend most of the time in the uh, blue bubble state of Maine. Right now, I'm in the red swamp of Florida. <laughs> most of my life uh, in land conservation with the Nature Conservancy, and now I'm active in Maine and climate change. Okay, John. Uh, hi, John Woodford here, um, class of 63, and I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I grew up in Benton Harbor, Michigan, across the state, and I do uh, you know, editing and writing jobs through my career, but... I am retired. Okay, Jeff. Uh, hi, uh, Jeff Fox, uh, living in southeastern Spain, uh, and now working on trying to figure out how to approach my next book. So. Okay, uh, David Allen. 
born and bred a Hoosier, but uh, of course never escaped the Charles River. So up here in Concord, Massachusetts now, um, I've had, as I say, a pastiche of a life in business, in the university, but the last decades, uh, the best decades, we hope, uh, have been in activism in one sort or another. My focus is democracy, uh, strengthening and preserving it. Looking forward to today's discussion. Indeed. Okay, Doug. Um, hi, I'm Doug Shapiro, uh, living in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. I grew up in Texas. Uh, I've had three different careers. I've lived in various places around the world, like uh, many of the rest of us, but I'm probably the only person here who uh, has spent three months living on Aldabra Island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. David Otmer. Uh, class of 63, I grew up in South and Central America and spent most of my career working in public television and radio in New York City and Philadelphia, where Maureen and I have lived for the last 30-some years. All righty. Ham. Um, 63, Nashville, uh, lived in uh, two parts, northern and southern Brazil and Puerto Rico, uh, most of it in the American South. And I think I'm earning a PhD in, in being ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to today, Bruce. Very much. Okay. <laughs> uh, class of '63. I've lived in two places: uh, the suburbs of Boston for much of my life, and Harlem, New York City, for 25 years. Uh, my work life has been grew out of uh, the Harlem Action Group, became organizing and uh, resourcing low-income young adults to create. Uh, affordable housing in the neighborhoods through the Youth Build program and creating other community solutions for other things. So I've been connected to uh, young people and young leaders all my life and still am, and I love it. Okay. Uh, Marcy, I think she might be just listening today. Okay, well, let's go to uh, Bruce. Thank you for coming and thank you for joining us and let us know, tell us about your work and your book and uh, you're sort of a youngster compared to us. Yeah, not too much. Um, uh, let me first uh, remark, as uh, I think John Kennedy uh, speaking to a, a collection of Nobel laureates in the White House never has a collection of such experience and genius uh, participated in a Zoom call <laughs> until Thomas Jefferson dined alone, you know. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson didn't have Zoom calls then, so. <laughs> he didn't have as a, a wide a, an audience. Um, yeah, but before I, I speak, I always remind myself of Samuel Johnson's quip about uh, John Milton's uh, Paradise Lost. It, it <laughs> dazzled on every page, but he said, none ever wished it were longer. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I've been in Washington, D.C. really for my entire professional career. He's uh, the clerk of the court and uh, in the executive branch serving in uh, as counsel to the Iran-Contra Committee on uh, Covert Arms Sales to Iran. Uh, and it's been um, challenging uh, and somewhat uh, disappointing to see the deterioration of, uh, of our constitutional dispensation. 
Uh, my very first project at the Department of Justice was to resurrect uh, the standards for impeachable offenses for President Nixon. This is the time of the Saturday Night Massacre. The issue really hadn't been addressed for a century since Andrew Johnson was impeached in 1868 um, and was part of the endeavor to have Richard Nixon uh, impeached. He obviously resigned to avoid what had been a conviction in the Senate. Um, I didn't think that uh, I would be returning to impeachment anytime soon. I figured this was uh, the finest hour of the United States. The most powerful man in the world was taken to justice. The American people were engaged. The Watergate hearings attracted everybody's attention. Uh, they understood the stakes uh, at issue. Oh, if the president could stand above the law, corrupt justice. Uh, uh, burglarized Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist's office with impunity and the whole host of other Watergate scandals. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, optimism proved misguided, uh, a little bit like, I guess, Dr. Pankos and Voltaire's Candide. Uh, and I believe that, unfortunately, although it seems ironic, that the dissolution of the uh, Soviet empire in 1991 really caused the American people, the culture, to embrace this idea that we now were certain uh, to have been chosen as uh, uh, the new chosen people to God. Uh, and were entrusted with the uh, perfection of humanity, you know, at the end of bayonets, going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Uh, the, the exact objective that uh, John Quincy Adams denounced in his July 4th, 1821 address to Congress, saying that, yeah, we might do that, but we would lose, we would lose our democratic dispensation, uh, glorifying liberty and the rule of law and the march of the mind at home, and the armored knight then would become the idol of the American people. And that is exactly what has happened. Um, and since that time, since 1991, we're in chronic wars, we overthrow governments, um, we pay no attention to international law, we preach about a rule-based international order as we violate international law every day. Examples being, you know, going into Iraq unprovoked, into Libya unprovoked. Now we're co-belligerents in Ukraine, uh, Russia has not attacked the United States, <laughs> uh, and who knows what the outcome is going to be. We should remember we went into Afghanistan for 20 years to get rid of Taliban. We returned after $2 trillion, $300 million a day, every day for 20 years. And now we have a more reprehensible and backward version of Taliban than we started with. No one pays a penalty. No one pays a price. No one's demoted. No one's criticized. The only one who loses the job is General McChrystal because he criticized Obama and Biden with indiscreet words, you know, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. And it's very depressing because you can see day to day. And I say my work is virtually constantly uh, with the Congress, uh, less with the executive branch, trying to get oversight, trying to have <laughs> rule of law reestablished. Uh, and it's largely a, a, a futile exercise. Uh, very few people care about the rule of law. It's all their party. Their loyalty isn't to the Constitution. Their loyalty is to getting their guy or their woman into the White House and then having publicity, uh, enjoying the comforts of being in public office. And if it means you know, the American people and the posterity you know, fall off of a cliff, well, that's just too bad. Eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. And we truly, in my judgment, are living through the equivalent of the Roman age of Caligula, Claudius, Nero. Um, we have, and this is not a partisan issue, Republicans, Democrats alike, I believe, are culpable in this exercise. Uh, we have been unable to resist the temptation of the thrill of being number one, you know, like 
we're little infants and juveniles playing football games. We can go around and tell anybody what we want them to do. We don't care if we're right or wrong because we've got the, the drones. We have the capacity to crush you no matter what, even if the long run, you know, it bankrupts us uh, and we accomplish nothing. As I say, it's 20 years after Afghanistan. It's worse off than it was uh, 20 years ago. You know, at present, the U.N., uh, estimates there's almost 29 million Afghans uh, needing humanitarian and preventive relief. 28, 29 million. <laughs> A staggering number. That, and, and, and we have no contrition. We just walk away, say, move on. Uh, the same thing we did in Libya, which has turned into a complete uh, wilderness. Uh, militias fighting militias. Uh, we wash our hands like Pontius Pilate. You'll notice all the stories about Libya today. None of them mentions that we were the, uh, the authors of, of that wilderness. Well, the, the Wagner group and other groups are intervening. I don't have anything good to say about them, uh, but we've lost the ability to say, no, you know, what we can change, which we should if we can, what we can't change, and we have to leave alone because we're, we're a cure that's far worse than the disease and recognize it's better to have an imperfect world that's less imperfect than trying to uh, turn the world into Camelot and destroy perhaps civilization in the, in, uh, in, in the result. Uh, one of the things that my greatest worry today that I write about regularly is the hysteria over China. Uh, Biden has already threatened four times to say that he will go to war, even though only Congress has the war power, uh, to fight China if it invades Taiwan. Uh, and China is not like Afghanistan. Uh, it's not even like Russia. It actually has nuclear weapons and capability of fighting back. And after centuries and centuries of degradation at the hands of the West, among other things, fighting opium worms to cram opium down the throats of the Chinese, uh, I think they're not willing to back down and to accept the idea that we have the same interest in the South China Sea 6,000 miles away as China does, just the same way that we would not feel comfortable if China was sending submarines and uh, spy missions off Long Beach and Los Angeles, California. Uh, we'd have another Cuban Missile Crisis in five seconds. Uh, and unfortunately, we keep moving inch by inch uh, towards a collision with China, the Quad, India, with Japan, with Australia, selling the Australia new nuclear submarines, uh, more weapons to Taiwan, Pelosi going over there and kind of in her face with the Chinese. This is what we can do. And it's stunning that in Congress itself, you know, we have this special committee now in the House just to focus on China, you know, TikTok, their little rag, you know, apps. Okay, we got to ban it. You know, anything that anything that relates to China, we have to ban, we have to boycott. They're the boogeyman, uh, you know, the equivalent of the terrorist after 9-11, the communist and Joe Stalin after 1945. Uh, and it's really quite alarming. Uh, a nuclear war uh, would be the potentially the end of the species. Uh, with nuclear winter. Uh, and you have generals who believe that even if there's just one American who survives, it's worth it if we could kill all the Chinese. Uh, and that's the mentality out there. So it's, um, it's very sad to see how far the United States has regressed from its initial foreign policy, which was friendship with all countries. We fight only to defend ourselves. Uh, we wish freedom and goodwill abroad. Uh, we encourage it uh, by example, uh, but we're smart enough to know that uh, if you use bayonets to promote your ideas, uh, you're just going to create more bayonets. 
And I spend a lot of time writing uh, pamphlets. They do tutorials on Congress, go up there to the Capitol Hill Club, uh, give lectures. Hey, this is the powers you've given away. You do no oversight anymore. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get anyone interested. In part, uh, that's attributable to the Supreme Court's decision in Citizen United. Everybody's worried about their campaign contributions, so they're spending time raising money. But part of it, too, is, I think, a deterioration in general of our educational system and civics culture in the United States. Uh, the members who occupy positions in Congress have not a clue what the Constitution is about. Let me give you one example. There was a luncheon uh, several weeks ago at the Capitol Hill Club for the freshman members. And there was one member of Georgia, and he was going to be on the Transportation Committee. He was going to say how he's going to do much more rigorous oversight. Well, anybody who's been around knows that oversight has become a joke because the executive branch doesn't comply with subpoenas. They claim executive privilege or we just don't want to show up or state secrets or something like that. Now, if you go to court, you know, it takes two or three years to litigate. And by the time you get any result, you know, it's already moot and it's politically irrelevant and stale. So there has been, and Brown at least affirmed by the Supreme Court for 100 years, something called inherent contempt power. It used to be that Congress would enforce subpoenas by sticking somebody in jail up on Capitol Hill uh, if they didn't comply. And then they could seek habeas corpus proceedings if they thought the detention was illegitimate. Well, that has kind of fallen into desuetude, and but it still remains. Uh, the Supreme Court decision is called McGrain and Dougherty, if anyone wishes to read it, stemmed from the Teapot Dome investigations. Uh, and I said, well, you know, are you going to use the inherent contempt power? That's the only way you're going to get something uh, that's timely and useful. And once you use it once, you won't have to use it ever again. Glaze, <laughs> hmm. eyes glaze over. What's the inherent contempt power? I mean, what is? They have no idea even what it is. Uh, and they just move on. Uh, and then they worry, well, if we use it, then if our opponent's in power, then they will use it. And it's so they just end up doing virtually nothing. A part of the temptation to do nothing and be inert is that their greatest fear is to have a primary opponent. Now, think of this. This is a democracy. How terrible it would be that you actually have to run against an opposing candidate. Really? You know, this is not supposed to be, you know, Russia's Putin or China's Z. So what? That's what democracy is about. You should applaud candidates who challenge you and then you have your ideas. You can debate. But that's viewed as a nightmare. Oh, I actually have to run for office. I can't gerrymander my end to life <laughs> tenure. You know, anyway, it's pretty sad. I mean, it's far worse than I could describe, you know, on this Zoom call, because I got to deal with it every day. I could give you war stories. It caused you to just shake your head and say, and this is the United States of America today. Uh, not the not the United States that we grew up when we were going to school. Uh, not anymore. And unless we restored, I don't see any I don't see the pendulum turning back. So that's what that's basically I, I'm focused uh, predominantly now on at least restoring you know, the war power and having checks and balances oversight, because otherwise, I say, the greatest danger we have um, is getting involved in a, a World War III with China or Russia. And part of the reason why war powers, in my, my judgment, is, is, is so important is because in times of war, and we learned about it after 9-11 Guantanamo, there is no law. Fourth Amendment goes out the window, the NSA starts spying on everybody. No warrants, nothing. It's no one discloses it. Nothing happens, you know. <laughs> They're still spying. They're probably picking up this conversation if they wanted to. But clearly under what the National Security Agency does, and I know people who have worked there, the very famous guy named Bill Binning. Yeah, they intercept everything. Of course, they don't have enough manpower to actually 
read all the stuff. So it's just building a bigger haystack. So finding the needle becomes more and more difficult. But that obvious stupidity doesn't hit them because they get paid by how much they collect, not what they value. Um, and uh, it, but that's and that's why the war power is so critical. We've been, you know, at a state of war, you know, terrorism ever since 9-11. And nobody's going to vote to repeal the war against terrorism. Oh, so something happens the next day. And of course, that means the civil liberties go out the window. I mean, it's really frightening when you contemplate, and I'm not exaggerating, that president since President Bush um, have asserted the power with no pushback from Congress or the American people or the media, for example. They claim the right to play prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner, kill anybody they want, say, if it's somebody I say is an imminent danger, that's done. I, I don't have to tell you why I picked that person out. I don't have to give you any explanation. It's secret. We know, among other things, because a leak that the teenage son of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki was exterminated in, in Yemen, you know, having dinner. Uh, he just was airbrushed out of history. And we don't know how many others have perished. It's estimated it's uh, it was a high watermark was during Obama. But the idea that a president without any accountability can just pick up somebody based without even formal charges, no trial, you just kill them. They're not on a battlefield. That's frightening. And yet there's no pushback uh, because the Constitution basically is now turned into you know, a, pager, a paper document. Um, and let me give you this is a, a, another example, I think, to show how uh, disrespectful uh, the whole culture is of the Constitution. I have a, a, a used to be a neighbor of mine, um, Chuck Hagel. You may recall he was senator from Nebraska for several years and he was secretary of defense for several years. And he was there when Obama negotiated an executive agreement uh, with Iran and other countries. You know, that's called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And previous to that, all nuclear arms agreements were treaties submitted to the Senate for ratification uh, by the two thirds majorities, beginning with the outer space uh, test ban agreement between Kennedy and Khrushchev in 1963. And indeed, just before this Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was concluded as an executive agreement, uh, the Obama administration had negotiated what's called the START Treaty, which limited, you know, international nuclear weapons between Russia and U.S. Said it submitted as a treaty, it got two-thirds vote. Anyway, um, this time, because Obama didn't think he could get two-thirds, he decided, heck, he just wasn't going to treat it as a treaty. He'd just say it's an executive agreement, move forward. And so I, I was at an event where I was hosting, and, and, and Senator Hagel, Chuck Hagel, was there. And I wasn't trying to be uh, disputatious or anything. Hey, Chuck, how, how come this wasn't a treaty? You know, you said in the Senate, you know, why wasn't this a treaty submitted for ratification? And he said, well, Bruce, you know, we just didn't think it could get passed. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, does that mean if you don't think you can get a statute passed, you just do an executive order and say the heck with the Congress? I mean, what about process? And, and Chuck Hegel is not, you know, he's not a crazy guy. I mean, we're not talking about Steve Bannon or other guys. But this was just part of the, the, the thinking. Okay, if you can't get through the proper procedure, you just steamroll with the Constitution and do however you think you can get away with it. And then Trump undid the same thing because it wasn't a treaty either. Um, but that's, I'd give that just as one, I could give you a thousand of examples of how uh, disregarded the Constitution is every day. And you have to ask yourself, if you can airbrush out one provision of the Constitution, oversight, treaties, war power, which provisions can you not airbrush out? It's just, you just pick and choose. First Amendment, Second Amendment, <laughs> takings of property without just compensation, 
you know, criminal due process, where does it stop? It's just whoever has the power and what seems to be politically convenient. So that's very troublesome to me uh, because it seemed to me that what unifies the United States or what ought to is an agreement on process. We may lose, but we're all going to play by the same rules. And that the playbook is the Constitution. Uh, if we think it's become obsolete, we can amend the Constitution. If it's done 27 times, it was done in the Civil War Amendments. It was done in the Bill of Rights. Uh, it's been done on other occasions. The 18-year-old Voting Rights Amendment passed in weeks because uh, it wasn't thought to send kids to Vietnam to go fight and die in swamps without having the right to vote. Uh, so and that's the process that, uh, that we follow. Uh, in order to make sure the Constitution doesn't become obsolete and we respect process. But unfortunately, that um, <laughs> is not a concept that uh, receives endorsement. Uh, it's all party polarization. You know, what's in it for my party and that where the Constitution goes out the window. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was truly stunning. I mean, let me give you two other examples, then I'll open up because they have so many examples. to give. One, um, Mike Pence. You know, if there's anybody who had smoking gun on January 6th, it was him because he had half a dozen conversations with Trump by himself. January 6th committee, I wrote them five letters mm -hmm. saying, hey, you have power to subpoena my vice president Pence. He's the one who's there. He doesn't have any privilege. He's not even vice president anymore. I was at the Department of Justice when we indicted and I mean, Spiro Agnew and he left office, too. But he actually I pled guilty to a crime. Nothing. Why didn't you? Why, why didn't you subpoena? Mike Pence. Well, you know, they worry. Oh, we don't want to set a precedent because maybe they subpoena us or when the other guys get in power. Anyway, <laughs> I think it, an act of just almost criminal irresponsibility. Why didn't you do that? Anyway, another example. So Kevin McCarthy, one, you know, on January 6th, we have uh, security cameras in the Capitol building. Uh, the security cameras are bought by our money. Taxpayers' money pay for those security cameras. Uh, the people who operate the security cameras are paid by the government. The cameras, the tape that is produced is the government's property, the American people's property, right? Kevin McCarthy gives 44,000 hours of the tape to Tucker Carlson. I said, where the heck did you get that authority? You just stole property of the American people. You can't do that. And when I left government, I didn't even take an eraser, not even a, a, a number two pencil. You know, this is the guy. I don't have any authority over that. This is the this belongs to the American people. No pushback, nothing. Democrats don't say anything. Where is this? Mark Kevin McCarthy himself said at the time he handed over Tucker Carlson, this belongs to the American people. I need to let them make their own judgment. Well, a Tucker Carlson is not the person that you would give the tapes to if you want you know, an impartial assessment or editing so that the American people can make their own judgment. So I've written a letter with Ralph Nader to Kevin McCarthy with copies to everybody else. What's going on here? You know, we have to sue you. You know, in a in a, a bill of replevin, you know, to get back the property that you stole and gave to to, to Tucker Carlson. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to me, you know, living under and the rule of law to see these flagrant violations, and no one says anything. But that's where we are. Yeah, there's you know you got to keep trying every day, no matter how bleak it looks. Uh, so that that's basically what I spend my time doing every day. I never I'm never worried about it not having a problem to address. <laughs> and this is one of the problems that we have, is that initially those who were occupying public office, they were real people. They had lives outside of public office. They weren't professional politicians. I mean, Thomas Jefferson leaves and he creates 
University of Virginia. He's writing as well as Madison. They weren't they weren't non people when they left office because they knew they were serious people, serious thinkers, and you know commanded attention and respect simply because of their brains and their ability to communicate. It doesn't happen anymore. These people leave office; they know that's the end. They follow into obscurity because they have nothing other than money and happen to get elected in the gerrymandered district. So they don't really pay any attention and don't care about any of this stuff. Their preoccupation is just, I just want to stay in power and I want our, I want our guys to get into the White House and, and go to the Kennedy Center and, and get a, a White House ball ticket or something from time to time. It's really amazing how little they're willing to corrupt their soul. I mean, at least, at least Faustus demanded a much higher price, you know, <laughs> he's going to corrupt his soul. These guys, it's really cheap. <laughs> what about Barbara? Barbara Lee stood up against the war making ones, but I don't know if she has a coherent or consistent view. No, I went over Barbara Lee. Yeah, she voted against. She was the only one who voted against the first Afghan war. But I went and I posted. I said, listen, you got to this. The only one, the only way you can get presidents to stop doing work, you got to impeach them and remove them from office. So when they were doing the impeachments, I, I mean, I'm writing impeach, the, the first impeachment power has got to be the war power. You can't let presidents go to war on their own. Right. That's the that is the clearest thing possible for as impeachable offense. George Washington, no, the war power belongs to Congress, and then therefore no offensive expedition of any importance can be undertaken until Congress has deliberated on the process and approved it. That's George Washington. He sat at the Constitutional Convention. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that was kind of then. This is now. You're throwing George Washington out. You know, he don't think he knew what they was in the mind. He was there. He was present at the creation. You know, to borrow from Dean Atchison. Um, but, uh, but Barbara Lee, you know, they just, they, they, they end up all being political and part of this, it's all organized by Pelosi, whether she's there or not, she raises all the money. So mm-hmm. she's has the whip hand over these peoples because she's got a war chest of 700 million bucks and you get on the wrong side, you're not going to have that anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I remember with the, this is the first impeachment. I knew Jim McGovern, uh, Ralph Nader and I went up to Jim's office. We had, are the, you know, the first impeachment was very narrow, it was, uh, focused on, Zelensky and the refusal to give military aid unless he opened an investigation against Biden said, yeah, that's 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 a tea party compared to all the other violations, <laughs> obstruction of justice. It was a way of life at the at the White House, you know, aside from the fact that he was running all these unconstitutional wars as well. Uh, and so we went up there to Jim McGovern and he said, Jim, uh, will there be opportunities to seek amendments to the articles of impeachment before they're sent to the Senate? And he said, uh, said, Bruce. Nancy said we couldn't do it, so we can't happen. <laughs> I said, you're the chairman of the rules committee. Anyway, that, so, so, so that's how this thing operates, you know. It's that corrupt. They have all, it's all in the leadership. And in fact, it's so openly corrupt that all the committees are assigned a tier, tier one, two, and three, based upon how much money you think you can raise from the people you're overseeing, mm. um, and, and therefore how much prestige attaches to each committee. So, you know, if you're a House Administration Committee, I mean, that's nothing. Who you gonna? You, you can't raise any money from these people because you're not overseeing any any huge, you know, multi-billion-dollar companies. <laughs> so they have Tier One, the Tier One committees, you know, Ways and Means Committee, Banking Committee, whatever. But you got to raise openly. You got to raise at least a million, a million and a half bucks for the committee, mm-hmm. for not the committee itself, but for the Republican National Committee of Democrats in order to get on there. So this is this is this is extortion. If you want to get on a prestigious committee and have your bills get to the floor, you got to raise a million, two million bucks for the Republican or Democratic National Committee. 
I said, I, I drafted a bill from Walter Jones <laughs> that would make it a crime, you know, to, 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 to condition, you know, appointments to committee based upon how much money you could raise. Uh, you didn't get any traction. <laughs> said, uh, that just goes away, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. Michael Kinsley once said, it's not what's illegal in Washington that's a scandal. It's what's legal that's a scandal. <laughs> well, Hamp. Yes. Uh, Bruce, there's a lot that you're saying that I agree with, and I like your standing up to power, at, at, et cetera. I'm trying to feel, without putting you in a box, I'm trying to feel my way to some kind of consistent political philosophy that get, that guides you. And let me say what I'm guessing and then tell me the truth. I, I'm, I'm uh, uh, guessing the, 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 that despite your willingness to stand up to Bush and, and stuff, that, that you're kind of like a uh, uh, alienated Bush Republican or uh, Lincoln or log cabin Republican. Uh, uh, no, that's not true. I don't I don't I don't organize Republicans. I vote for James Madison or George Washington. I won't vote for either party. I don't make any contributions to them. Uh, I I'm devoted to the Constitution and process, period. Uh, I may disagree with the result, but if you follow the process. That's so important. Uh, but no, I don't hang out with those people or anything else. And that's why it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, because the the situation is so polarized, say, listen, if you want me to be a mouthpiece for you, then you've got somebody else. I'm not going to do that. But but wasn't your early career more or less hanging out with those people? Uh, it was, for, it was in it was in it was it. Yeah, that was in the that. Yeah. But I'm talking about I I I may I'm I'm older than you may think. Um, uh, but for the last for at least for the least the last twenty twenty years, no way, no. Yes. Uh... Well, as Hamp and, other, and the others have, have, have mentioned, you've covered a huge amount of ground. Um, I, I'd just like to comment that uh, the problems that you have uh, referred to uh, recently about uh, the, the presidential uh, use of war powers without uh, any kind of uh, approval by Congress is nothing new in this country. And yeah. anyone who has read Max Boot's little book called The Savage Wars of Peace will know uh, we have done this many, many times over the centuries. And just, just one little fact from his book is that between the years 1800 and 1934, U.S. Marines staged 180 landings abroad in different countries and different places, uh, 180. Um, and I'll bet almost none of those were approved by Congress. So, you know, we have this uh, Constitution, uh, but it, it, it almost sounds like the Constitution is somehow just not really embedded in the mentality and, and the ways of thinking of people in our country. Well, I mean, wonderful observations, and thank you. Um, first of all, with regards to the first deployments, which came in the Barbary Wars, um, Congress passed 11 statutes authorizing what was done. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson said, I can't go beyond defense or self-defense unless you pass the statutes. And Congress did pass the statutes. Now, the deterioration began, really, when President James came. And, 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 and all the periods, remember, all of South Central America were upheaval from early 1800s to about 1830. This revolts against the Spanish and Portuguese empires. We didn't lift a finger to go send anybody there. So, no, we're a, that's their business. 
Uh, in terms of the crumbling of the, the, the fidelity to the war power, it began with the Mexican-American War with uh, President James K. Polk first embracing Manifest Destiny. He lied to the American people. He lied to Congress about um, uh, an American soldier being killed on American soil by a Mexican soldier. That was a lie. Abraham Lincoln introduced spot resolution, said, Where, where's the spot? Uh, Pope would never come up with any spot. Uh, Congress later voted that the war was unconstitutional and uh, un totally unnecessary. Daniel Webster flirted with impeachment ideas in the Senate, uh, but the war came to a conclusion before Congress acted very much. But the idea that a president could remain in office when he lied to justify and get the vote for war is really shows at least the first crack, if you will, uh, in the war power. Um, and then you go to the, uh, then, uh, but, but it, it's not true, I think, that the war power completely collapsed outside of Congress. Congress prevented uh, Ulysses Grant from getting uh, naval bases and uh, dispatching Marines and uh, uh, Dominican Republic, I think it was then called Santo Domingo. Um, we did then, I agree with you, starting around 1900, after the Spanish-American War and then the Philippines War, uh, that was where uh, the war power completely began to collapse. And, uh, you know, the USS Maine was not blown up by the Spanish. It's probably an internal explosion. Uh, and again, that was misrepresented to Congress to get the declaration. But then afterwards, yeah, presidents began to send war. Wilson goes into Mexico with searching after Pancho Villa with General Pershing. And we got the Marines and the military is interceding, you know, every other day in Panama, in Nicaragua, in uh, Haiti, in Dominican Republic, <laughs> in Cuba. Uh, we even had the Teller Amendment, uh, uh, the, or the Platt Amendment in the, in the Cuban Constitution that, that enabled us to build Guantanamo Bay as a naval base there. I mean, it really is a strange. You know, we talk about uh, other countries, you know, being um, uh, projecting their force abroad. Well, how did we end up with Guantanamo Bay? We told the Cubans that has to be in your constitution. Otherwise, we're not leaving. <laughs> so we crammed it down their throat because you know, we pay them, what, a peppercorn or something there. But we never seemed to ask, isn't that kind of odd? Why do we have Guantanamo Bay? It's in another country. Uh, I can guarantee you if, if Putin or Xi tried to put a, a base in another country like that, you know, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. We got to go to war. Um, so I think that I, where I think I would part company with Max Boot is I don't think that the war power collapsed at the outset. It was honored at the outset. And Jefferson and the, the early president said, no, we can't go to war on our own. They did get congressional authorization for it. Then I say, starting with the Mexican-American War, and of course, John Quincy Adams voted against the war. So did Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it was a slow erosion. Uh, and then the presidential power, you know, it turned into being a periodic or episodic violations and uh, a, a common and then a daily violation. Of course, perhaps the most egregious was the Korean War where Harry Truman said it's a police action. <laughs> well, some police action, you know, <laughs> ready to drop nuclear bombs on, the, on China, up the Yalu River uh, with General MacArthur. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, no, we're not going to go to Congress for any authorization. The lies about the Gulf of, Gulf of Tonkin resolution. So that's where I think I would disagree. I do think that we did have a time where our culture did honor the Constitution. It was very important. It was debated. Uh, I remember uh, early on, uh, when the Greek had their war of independence against the Ottoman Empire, they came to the U.S. and said, oh, we need you to come help us out. We said, you know what? 
That's not going to happen. We did our own fight against Great Britain. It was a lot stronger than the Ottoman Empire. You go do your own thing. Uh, the Hungarians came in 1848-49, wanted help against the Russian invasion to prevent uh, the uh, 1848 resolutions, revolutions from succeeding. We told them, you know what? Uh, no, our best influence abroad is the influence of example. Better to keep our bright light of democracy and, and liberty at home shining as, a, as an example for others to follow than to squander our, uh, our, our, our resources and our standards on fighting foreign wars. Mm -hmm. uh, but but I, I certainly would not disagree with the idea that this has been a, a long-term trend. It's not like it all happened at 9-11 or something like that. It's been a much slower and gradual process. 9-11 uh, was kind of the culmination. And then since then, you know, presidents do whatever they want to do. And the whole culture has accepted the idea that uh, presidents go to war whenever they wish. That's why Biden has said eight, ten times, yeah, I'm going to go to war on my own. If you go invade NATO, if you invade Taiwan, no mm -hmm. says anything. The press doesn't say anything. They, they, <laughs> no, no. And I can guarantee you the press will not publish. this. I have written so at least 20 letters to The New York Times, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, pointing out this is what was said at the convention. This is what the meaning of X, Y, Z. You at least ought to inform your readers that what's being said is contrary to the Constitution. They will not touch it. They are part of the warfare state. The mainstream media is now part of the warfare state. Mm -hmm. and, and most recently, and let me bring you up to date, something currently in the news. Um, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 pipeline explosion. Okay. <laughs> now, let me, let me bring you up to date on a couple of things that's not very much reported and not reported when the latest speculations out of the intelligence community, I call it the, the numbskull community, it, um, you know, it says, well, maybe some private Ukraine group did. Oh, on yeah. February 7th, February 7th, and remember, we start out with the idea, whenever you have a mystery, uh, all intelligence starts with qui bono, who benefits? Not, that's not definitive, but that's the starting point, qui bono. So on February 7th, 2022, uh, a, a week or two before the Russians invaded Ukraine, Joe Biden says, if Russia attacks Ukraine, Nordstrom 2 is going to be blown up, and I can guarantee you we can do it. He wasn't more specific because he knew it was going to be a covert operation, right? That's Joe Biden. Then comes the invasion. It's come September. Ah, Murabiru Tiktu. Ah, the explosions happen. Right after the explosions, Tony Blinken, the Secretary says, this is a wonderful opportunity, right? A great strategic advance because now we can wean the Europeans off of Russian natural gas. And that was the only way the Russians had to influence Europe. Then that is echoed by Victoria Newland. She's the undersecretary of the State Department saying we're so elated and happy to see the pipeline is now a hulk of mm. metal on the bottom of the sea, rejoicing at what happened. Now, you ask yourself, OK, <laughs> and I, I'm not even including um, the uh, 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 Cy Hirsch's Substack column that comes into gets it more granular detail. But ask yourself. Who benefited from the explosions of the pipeline, right? Qui bono? Well, according to Biden and Blinken and Victoria Nuland, they were related. It helped our strategic posture towards Russia. Well, don't you think it's probably likely? We exploded. We destroyed them. <laughs> yeah. We did. Now, Cy, if you want more detail, you know, and Cy Hirsch is not a crazy guy. You know, he's Cy Hirsch. He does the family jewels of the CIA. He does Abu Ghraib. He does Milai Massacre. So he has a track record, uh, but the mainstream media won't publish him anymore because he's not inside the 
the war power state, the warfare state. Uh, so <laughs> what happened? They, they, we just accept the idea. Okay, we'll blow up the pipelines. It's an act of war. Shrug shoulders. And there's no, I can guarantee you, there's never going to be a congressional hearing on this. Certainly not in our lifetime, maybe 100 years from now. No way. It's going to be covered up. Yeah. It, no, there's no indication that Congress has any interest in this. Yeah. It took them two weeks to invent the shadowy, mysterious uh, Ukrainian group that did it. Yeah, right. And it's all amorphous, too. Yeah. Going to we don't know names. yeah, they don't have any names, but they weren't connected <laughs> with it. It's all so convenient because they yeah. don't want they can't connect it to the Ukrainian government because then Putin would get angry right. or whatever. So, yeah. I mean, it's not even it's not even a good lot. You know, it's a oh. bad lot. Well, this is a little inchoate. First, uh, thanks very much for your uh, very interesting uh, and, and uh, exciting uh, comments and so on. Um, I, I, I ask if, if you think that government does have a role in dealing with some of the issues, uh, some of the major issues in the uh, in the country, and if you if you grant that then I think there needs to be a certain amount of leadership. And I don't think we could have 435 separate approaches to whatever the issue is. And to some extent, there's a, there, there may be a need for leadership to, to sort of bring people together. Um, in, in Robert Caro's book on Johnson, the biography, he, he sent about 75 pages or so on the fact that the Senate could do, did nothing for about, uh, 50 or 75 years on all the major problems, labor, race, uh, various, the economy, big business, and so on, and women's rights, whatever. Uh, and, and they couldn't do anything. And Johnson finally came in and he slapped some people around and used a whole lot of tactics, which I think most of us would not particularly like. But God damn it, he did get some stuff done. Uh, and the same thing, you know, I think if if you believe if you believe that government needs to deal with whatever the key issues are, how do you reconcile that with you need some leadership, whether it's Pelosi, whether it's well, clearly not Boehner, but but uh, somebody or other uh, to do that? So that's my question. Um, <laughs> first of all, um, and Cairo wrote more than one book, right? <laughs> six volumes. Anyway, well, is it six volumes? LBJ didn't um, decide that he would just act on his own. He acted act the Senate to vote for the stuff in accord with the Constitution in order to get bills to pass. Um, he didn't act unilaterally and say, I'll just resort to an executive order the heck with amending the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or passing the Civil Rights Act of 64. Um, and of course, when Johnson did sometimes speak out of turn, like lying about the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, lying about, you know, rolling thunder that he had in place before uh, the 64 election and then started the Vietnam War on his own. Um, you know, he, he showed that there's a serious problem when that's the leadership we ended up with as well. Um, but the larger point, I believe, is that the, process, the, the, the framers conceived that separation of powers was our structural bill of rights. Of course, the executive has a role to play. The executive has a bully pulpit. Uh, Johnson was able to utilize it to get the Congress to pass uh, very important civil rights legislation. But Congress passed the legislation. They voted for it, was accountable for it. 
Uh, and that's the way the system is intended to operate. Ambition counteract ambition. Uh, we can never depend upon the benevolence of a dictator or of an autocrat or of an enlightened person. Okay, that's needed because otherwise, you know, it's too slow to go through the, the, the regular constitutional process. It was Jefferson who wrote, let me hear no more about confidence in man, but bind all officials down by the change of the constitution. Uh, now, if that seems not to work, uh, there's always the amendment process. Uh, and we can amend the constitution if we believe that needs to be more centralized power one way or the other. But that's the way you do it. You just don't decide on your own. Hey, it's not work. Why don't we kind of fudge a little bit here? Because whether the next guy's going to fudge it in a little different way, you, 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 you make the process illegitimate on that score. And um, I believe our, our, the long-term deliverance uh, is in process, even if in the short run, it's very disappointing. Uh, otherwise, uh, evading the process is what I call a cure worse than the disease. There is no question about what's going on in the Ukraine. Uh, it is an attempt, like Hitler, in Europe uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, was set upon uh, changing those national borders uh, by having a bigger and better military regime. Uh, I invite you to... Uh, to tell us where you come out on that particular rule, that particular process. Yeah, wonderful. And thank you for the question. Um, first, a little bit of background. You may recall um, prior to the, uh, the Nuremberg trials, which was, at, it was 1946, it's basically contemporaneous with the establishment of the UN. Uh, there was the Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, which we were signatories to. So was Japan. So was Russia. The Kellogg-Briand Pact, you know, sought to disown uh, military force as an instrument of foreign policy. Uh, but soon after it was signed, you had Manchuria and Ethiopia, and no, it just was ignored. Uh, it is true at Nuremberg, the charter of the International Military Tribunal made, they called it crimes against peace. We'd call it today aggressive war. Um, and, and, and building in part on at least the principle of Kellogg-Briand, although the principle had been honored more in the briefs than the observance since it was actually ratified. Um, and that the idea of, of crimes against peace were that uh, the only legitimate foundation for war was self-defense, if you're attacked. Um, and unfortunately, uh, because international law is not self-enforcing, um, uh, it's you can't go to a tribunal <laughs> uh, to decide whether someone's fighting in self-defense or not. Uh, although your common sense can tell you, you know, what seems to be the case. Um, and uh, in my judgment, um, uh, not because it leads to a perfect world, that means for the United States uh, that uh, we fight only in self-defense. Uh, we can help and encourage others who are attacked wrongfully, uh, but uh, it's up to them to establish their own defense, uh, just like we did against the British. Uh, not because I believe the world will necessarily uh, prove to be angelic. Um, uh, the Chinese are committing genocide against the Uyghurs. We're not attacking China. They're doing the same with regard to Tibetans. 
uh, Hong Kong is probably going to be taking it de facto, you could call it the conquer. Uh, and although uh, we, we wish uh, and we deplore uh, what we sense is injustice and violence abroad for the United States policy, uh, or, or for ourselves, uh, we fight as James, I mean, as uh, John Quincy Adams said, we go, we don't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Uh, we fight in self-defense and urge through our example and encouragement uh, other countries uh, to defend themselves if the international uh, uh, rules of the game have been violated. So from my view, no, we don't, that we, we encourage Ukraine. I believe uh, Putin is clearly in violation of international law. He's committed crimes against uh, peace, uh, but you, we're not establishing who's going to go in and capture uh, him uh, and, and put him on trial. It's just not going to happen. Not because it wouldn't be just, but because there's going to be a lot of injustice in the world because mankind is made of crooked timber. Uh, and for me, uh, I always ask, uh, even if something's bad, is the cure worse than the disease? And my reading of history and experience is that, yeah, you go in there, you, you establish a principle and you can't contain it and you end up with a, a cure worse than the disease. So it's better uh, just to stick as, as uh, the ending of Candide, attend your own gardens uh, through um, example, uh, encourage others to follow, uh, but know what you can't change without making something worse. Well, Bruce, thank you for coming on so much. It was really great. Well, I think the I, 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 the questions were better than the answers, I'm sure, and I really appreciate everyone's attentiveness. Yeah. Well, okay, well, thank you. Thank okay, you. good you luck. Have a, wonderful, have a wonderful afternoon or wherever everyone, everyone is. Thanks. Okay, okay. Thanks, Bruce. Bye-bye. Bruce Fine. In 2010, he wrote a book titled American Empire Before the Fall. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.